Thanks for joining us on the Hope Podcast. Hope Community Church exists to love people where they are and help them grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. By pursuing this relationship together, we can change the world. Hey, when you're done listening to this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free app. From there, you can find all of our recent message content. Our app is actually the best place to keep up with everything going on at Hope. If you like what you hear today, we encourage you to share this with your friends or family. Enjoy. Well, welcome those of you joining us online at one of our physical campuses. And how are you guys doing in the room right now? Doing good? Good. Well, it's good to be with you. If this is your first time joining us, a special welcome to you. Um, You chose the perfect week to jump in. We are starting a brand new series. And you might have noticed uh, my preaching helmet up here. If you're brand new, you don't know what that is. There are certain sermons that you give that people just love and they share on social media and they see you in the lobby afterwards and they want to give you a big high five. And then there are certain sermons you give that not everyone loves and uh, they don't share it on social media and they don't want to give you a high five. They want to give you a smack in the face. And so this is why I have this up here. This is going to be one of those sermons, not just one of those sermons, uh, but one of those sermon series. Um, We're going to be hitting some really tough topics in a really head-on way. And I know I might be getting some emails saying, hey, why are you talking about that in church? Can you actually talk about those topics in church? And one of my pastor friends says, listen, if the church doesn't disciple people, the world absolutely will. Uh, So it's important that we hit these topics in a head-on and a a really honest and authentic way because the Word of God absolutely has something to say. But I do just want to let you know that I'm going to be talking about certain topics like gender, sexuality, abortion, some of those hot button issues, because the scripture that we're going to be in over the next few weeks talks about those topics. And uh, I just want to say, I was preaching a few months ago during a family series, and I just said a sentence really quickly about how, you know, sex was designed to be enjoyed in the context of one man and one woman uh, in the context of marriage, not before, not outside of that. And there was a couple that got up and they just walked out. And I'm not mad that they walked out. I might have to, if this was my first time, I didn't know the guy up on stage, but I just wish that I could have talked to them, that I could have had a conversation with them afterwards. See, at Hope, we are unapologetic about the truths that are in God's word. We don't apologize for them. We don't need to. God doesn't need to apologize. We're also okay uh, with people feeling a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, we're all going to feel uncomfortable as we go through the different books of the Bible, as we approach different truths in scripture. But there is a fine line between feeling uncomfortable and feeling unwelcomed, okay? We never want you to feel unwelcome. We know uh, that there are people across all of our campuses watching online right now that might be, you know, in the LGBTQ community or have different views on us when it comes to divorce or when it comes to abortion. And we definitely know that there are husbands, uh, there are moms and dads, and that there are sisters and brothers, there are relatives, there are people that, that love people that would disagree with us on certain topics. And so I just want you to hear me clearly say right now, you are are welcome here. Uh, We are so glad that you are here. We count it an honor uh, that you would spend a portion uh, of your time with us. You don't have to hide who you are while you are here. Uh, And in the recent past, uh, we know that we have not given those certain topics the time or the careful explanation that they deserve. So we're going to fix that in the near future. I can promise you that. But for now, I'd encourage you, if you ever feel unwelcome, just to have a conversation with a pastor at one of your campuses, a pastor here or even online. And until we address those issues and give them the time that they need, uh, just know you are going to feel a little bit uncomfortable. There's going to be moments that all of us feel that in this sermon series. But hopefully my prayer is no one feels 
unwelcome. All right, we good with that? All right, so we are starting a brand new sermon series that we are call, calling Counter Culture. And I've been praying about this and preparing for this series uh, since the fall. So excited. And we're going to be going through what has become one of my favorite books in the Bible because of how relevant and applicable and timely and needed it is when I look around the world that we find ourselves in. Because I don't know if you've noticed or not, but times, they are changing. Uh, we here in America are following along behind uh, other European countries towards what philosophers call secularism or away from religion. Uh, America, which many people would have considered Christian overall a few years ago, now is decidedly not. Uh, the number of people that check the box as none when asked about their religion, and maybe you're here, welcome, um, is rising every single year. Um, even people that still would proclaim to be Christians have taken almost whole books out of the Bible and kind of thrown them away. And uh, anti-Christian sentiment is at an all-time high for this country, all right? We are not being martyred like our brothers and sisters in other countries, but for our countries, it, it is at an all-time high. Uh, from what I can tell, our culture now views evangelical Bible-believing Christians kind of as a problem to be solved. Uh, we're labeled as backwards, as uh, out of touch, as having all sorts of phobias. Um, there's a 2016 Time a Magazine article titled, Regular Christians Are No Longer Welcome in American Culture. Uh, my grandparents would have never believed or thought that you could be penalized or maybe lost your job for just posting something on social media or having a conversation that lovingly and clearly expressing what the Bible has to say about a whole host of different issues. But that's because when my grandparents were growing up, most people were Christians or at least held to uh, some form of a Judeo-Christian ethic, but that's not the case anymore. Uh, the truth of the matter is that we as Christ followers in this country, we are not the majority. And we're beginning to figure out what it feels like to be outsiders. And this is new to all of us. And because of the newness of this feeling, it's easy to become confused, uh, to become angry, to become defensive, to become uh, defeated. And it can also be really hard to figure out, okay, what is the way forward? Like, are we supposed to isolate? Are we supposed to just kind of retreat to our Christian bubbles and just wait until things change? Or are we supposed to fight? Are we supposed to like pick up arms in this huge culture war? Is it both and a mixture of both? Is it none of the above? We don't know because we've never been in this position before. But as new as this feeling of being outsiders is for us 21st century Americans, listen, it is not new for the people of God. God's people have find themselves, have found themselves as minorities in the midst of a hostile culture hundreds of times before. Uh, the people of God know intimately what it feels like to be pushed to the margins, to be pushed to the sidelines, whether it was the Jewish people in Egypt, enslaved in Egypt, or the Jewish people in Assyria, or Babylon, or Persia, or the early church in the, in the, um, the midst of Rome. This is not new territory for God's people. And you may not know this, but the Bible is filled with wisdom and encouragement and really a game plan of how now shall we live in this new place that we find ourselves. And one of the clearest teachings on how to thrive and not just uh, how to survive, but how to thrive and how to love a culture that doesn't exactly love us 
is the book of First Peter. And so if you have your Bibles, you can actually go ahead and turn there. It's kind of hard to find. It's near the end of the New Testament. We're going to throw up um, some scripture on the screen. But from the very first verse, you can tell that we have a lot in common with the people that Peter is writing to. He says this in verse one. There's lots of kind of churchy Christian words in here. We're not going to go through all of it. But it says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. In Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's, that's the very beginning of the letter that we're gonna dig into the next few weeks. So Peter, uh, you might remember him. He's one of Jesus' disciples in the gospels. He's the guy that walked on water, kinda. He ended up sinking the guy that chopped that dude's ear off. That Peter, well, he's become a leader in the church of Jerusalem. And so he's written this letter that's supposed to be passed around to all these different groups of Christians all over the Roman Empire. It's written at about 62 AD, about 30 years after Jesus died and was raised from the dead. And it's written during the time of Nero. And if you don't know much about uh, Roman history, Nero was not exactly a fan of Christ followers. So this letter was written a few years before widespread persecution, before, I mean, he basically had Christians skinned alive. He'd light them as torches in his garden for like evening parties. So this is a, this is a few years before that. But even now, uh, things were pretty rough. So the violence against Christ followers in Jerusalem had gotten so bad um, that many people had to flee. Uh, the majority of Christians inside Jerusalem had to uh, kind of go into exile and they ended up wherever they could find homes, wherever they could find jobs. That's why Peter calls them exiles of the dispersion. So these really are kind of religious refugees all over the Roman nation. And so we have a lot in common with them. Almost overnight, uh, these people's whole entire lives had changed. Uh, they'd left the safety of their hometowns They'd left the safety of their home churches uh, and they've had to set up camp among people who really didn't understand or know or really care about their religion. And although they had escaped kind of the violent assault on their religion in Jerusalem, now they were facing the constant and daily pressures of their neighbors to leave behind Christianity and to adopt the Roman way of life. And so Peter's writing to a group of people he knows are just thinking, okay, things have changed. We are a long way away from Jerusalem, a long way away from home. There's a lot of pressure to speak and to act and to think like and to drink and eat like and to have relationships like our neighbors in the Roman world. In fact, our neighbors don't really like us. And resisting, I mean, that's probably not gonna do a whole lot. I mean, how much can a handful of Christians really do or accomplish? So if we're gonna succeed in this new place that we find ourselves in, maybe it's better to adapt, to change, to leave behind the foundations of our religion and really adopt the Roman way of life. And all throughout this letter, Peter pleads with them and he pleads with us, no, no, don't do that, resist, fight the drift, do everything you can to maintain your faithfulness to Jesus, uh, push back against this cultural pressure to conform. Don't give in, be faithful to your calling as countercultural as it may be. And all throughout this letter, Peter and really the Holy Spirit gives us some incredible principles that if we hold fast to them and we apply them, we won't just survive, but we'll thrive and we'll actually even influence some of the people that hate us the most right now 
with the gospel of Jesus. So that's where we're gonna be the next few weeks. But this week, I just wanna show you a few things, a few truths um, that Peter comes back to over and over and over again in this letter. Just a few truths, two truths that really are kind of uh, in, in uh, the fabric of this letter. And you really have to understand these truths, two, two truths to really understand what Peter's getting at here and really to understand the position that we find ourselves in as well. The first one is this. One of the easiest emotions that Peter knows his readers can fall into in these seasons of kind of being pushed to the margins and the sidelines is anger. It's anger. And an anger that takes on kind of an us versus them mentality. It's one of the most natural responses uh, to being mistreated or to being persecuted. And make no mistake, the people that Peter is writing to, they absolutely are being mistreated. All throughout the letter, Peter specifically speaks to certain instances and, and we learn that they're being called evildoers, uh, they're being reviled, they're being slandered, they're being maligned, they're being insulted, uh, they're being treated unjustly and even physically harmed in some cases. And he knows it would be really, really easy for them to develop this deep anger and even this hatred towards the people that are mistreating them. And we see that today, don't we? I mean, you turn on cable news, you listen into conversations on social media, there's a whole lot of hate being thrown around. There's a whole lot of us versus them going on. See, in these moments, it's really, really easy to point your finger and to buy into this thinking that this person or this group of people or this organization or this political party even, or this institution, they're the reason that we're suffering. They're the reason that people hate us. They are the enemy. But Peter is very, very clear in showing us that from God's vantage point, this is not what's going on. I mean, Peter got to hang out with Jesus as he was being persecuted, as he was being assaulted, as he eventually gave up his life. And Jesus didn't respond in anger. How did he respond? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And, he, and so he, he tries to instill in his readers and us the perspective that Jesus had, which is people or institutions or organizations, they are not our enemy. See, Peter kind of pulls back the curtains and says, you do have an enemy, but it's not the group of people that you're pointing your finger at. He says this in chapter five, he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. He says, you do have an adversary. And what's his name? Is the devil, right? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He says, that's the one that you need to resist. Resist him. Firm in your faith, listen to this, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are, be ex are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So Peter kind of says, hey, here in America, you're pointing your finger at this group of people. They're the reason, they're, they're the enemy. While our brothers and sisters in Christ in Iraq or Iran are pointing at a completely different group of people. And our brothers and sisters in Indonesia or in India are pointing their fingers at a group of this group of people. Uh, but behind all of that is a real enemy. And his name is Satan. And see, part of what Peter does in this letter is he gets his readers and us to really remember and look back on the history of God's people and realize that as God followers, as Christ followers, our history really is just the process, the cycle of there's times of blessing and there's times of persecution. There's seasons of blessing and then there's seasons of persecution. There are uh, seasons of ease and comfort and then seasons of hostility. There's times where our main enemy, the devil, he gains power, he gains ground, and we feel the brunt of that. And there's times where he loses power and loses ground. 
If you look back, you can see Abraham in Genesis living kind of a time of ease in the desert with his kids and grandkids and great grandkids. And then it's slavery in Egypt. It's the Jews living in the promised land and then going into captivity in Egypt and then uh, the promised land and then Assyria and then peace and then Babylon and then peace and then Persia and then the the peace and then uh, the early church in the midst of Rome. The the history of God's people is really the cycle of the evil one rising and falling and rising and falling. So our enemy is not the people that we commonly point our fingers at. It's the same enemy that the people of God have been fighting time and time again. See, this is new for us, but this is not new for our enemy. He's been in this position of power before. And one of the truths that you have to understand before jumping into this book is that we have an enemy and he is good at what he does because he has done this time and time again. This is new for us, but it's not new for him. And Peter uses this letter to really clue in um, the people that he's writing this letter to on some of the tactics that the evil one wants to use. Because you need to hear this. Satan has been using the same tactics all throughout history. The devil has just a handful of plays in his playbook that he runs over and over and over again. What we see him doing in Egypt and Babylon and Assyria and Persia and in the book of 1 Peter through Rome and what we see him doing uh, here today are are basically the same. Uh, One of the first tactics that our enemy uses is separation. We just read about that in verse 1. He tries to separate Christians from one another. He seeks to divide and conquer. Uh, Whenever he got the upper hand on God's people, uh, whatever country would take them over would always split the Israelites, the Jewish people into these little groups and then deport them all over the known world. That's kind of what's happening in 1 Peter as well. And the thinking behind that is, okay, if we can get our hands on these Christians and if we can relocate them, if we can isolate them, then we can re-educate them then we can indoctrinate them and eventually change the way that they think about this world. See, the enemy knows we are much easier prey when we are alone because uh, we are influenced by who we spend time with the most. And if he can cut us off from Christians, he can do some damage. So in this letter of 1 Peter, the enemy's using uh, persecution to cause isolation, but he uses all different types of stuff today. I see this sometimes in the lives of college students where they'll leave home and they'll attend university. And when they go there, they don't have the safety of their home church. They don't have the daily influence of their Christian parents. And they might not plug into a church. Maybe they eventually stop attending church altogether. And eventually they get to this place where, okay, I'm just just gonna pause this faith thing for a little while. And then they get to a point where they say, okay, maybe I'll just give this up altogether. I think Satan absolutely uses technology, which is a blessing, but also a curse. I mean, how many times has he kind of whispered in your ear, do you really need to go to church? You don't really need to go be with God's people. You can just just be you and Jesus. You can just listen to a podcast. That's all you really need. You'll be fine. Or sometimes uh, this tactic of isolation is more overt. Remember my preaching helmet. Uh, Recently, In public schools across the country, uh, gender and sexuality training has become really, really popular. And it's not even the content of the training that I care about. It's how they go about it. Uh, But school systems everywhere are taking students, mainly middle school students, putting them in a room and talking about, you know, gender is a spectrum and there's different types of sexuality that you can kind of choose from. Um, But one of the things that teachers are told that's disturbing to me is that they're not allowed to involve the parents. 
So if they have a young, impressionable 11-year-old sixth grader that expresses, hey, I might be struggling with this, or I might be kind of um, uh, experiencing all these different um, things going on in my heart and in my body, um, it is illegal in certain counties for the teachers to bring the parents into that conversation. So at a California Teachers Association conference last year, teachers were actually encouraged, you need to research the internet search history of your kids. If you see them questioning some of this, then they're encouraged to go invite them to a really secret, covert gender club. And then when that club meets, they're encouraged not to take a role so that if the parent calls and asks, hey, is my student attending? They don't have to say yes or no. That, that's separation. That's isolation. It's not deporting Christians to different towns, but it's the same thing. See, different time, different culture, same enemy, same tactics. Another tactic you'll always see the enemy do is he will always attack the family. Uh, Peter includes the longest and most in-depth teaching on husbands and wives and the importance of marriage in the entire Bible because he knows where these people are living, the culture is gonna press in and attack the marriage. You know, today we, we actually have some organizations that will just openly say the reason we exist is to tear down the norms of Western prescribed nuclear family. We're out here to destroy the family. But even besides that, I mean, I think we can all agree that monogamy is not something that is celebrated. Like long-term committed marriages are not exactly something that's applauded. A lot of times divorce is lifted up as the first and the only choice, not kind of the last in a long list of many choices. But it's not just the family unit that the enemy attacks. He also, and this is gonna be new for a lot of you guys. He also historically always tries to confuse gender and sexuality. He always kind of pushes people towards things that make, you know, really the traditional family impossible. Um, the fact that we and our children are being confronted with lots of different ideas of gender and sexuality hundreds of times a day through social media and uh, TV and movies and the news. Listen, and this was surprising to me, this is not new. I didn't know this. I was kind of confronted with this whole huge gender movement. And as a pastor, like, I want to love people well. I want to help people out. I want to be informed. And in Asheville, it was just like kind of overwhelming. And I, I just had this feeling, man, this is new. Have pastors gone through this in the past? How can we love these people well? How can we encourage them? What does the Bible have to say about this topic? And as I began reading and researching, lo and behold, this actually isn't new at all. I began reading, uh, there's a, a feminist named Camille Paglia. She's a very famous feminist, very popular in the 80s. Uh, she would consider herself transgender. She hasn't gone through any operations or anything. But the strange thing about her is that she is not a proponent of this new gender movement. And so I've been reading a lot of her stuff and listening to her. And, but she actually did a study of the fall of civilizations. And she says that an obsession, she calls it an effervescence, but an obsession with gender is one of the signs that a nation or empire is nearing collapse. Now, okay, don't freak out. I don't think that that's happening. But just to say that this has happened before, this might surprise you, but um, a few years after the letter of 1 Peter is written, Nero, the leader of Rome, after his first wife died, some people think he kicked her to death, who knows, but um, he became attracted to a 12, 13-year-old boy because he looked like his first wife. And so he had that slave boy brought into his family, surgically altered to be a female as much as possible back then, paraded, had a parade down the streets of Rome, hugging and kissing and stuff, and then married them in front of the whole family. It's the marriage of Nero and Sporus. See, this has happened before. This isn't new territory for God's people. 
And it's not just marriage and sexuality. One thing you also always see for some strange reason is that Satan always targets babies. He always goes after little children. Uh, When the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, Pharaoh made an edict, hey, every single Hebrew male baby needs to be killed. When uh, Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph, they had to flee Bethlehem and move to Egypt because Herod at that time over Rome and kind of Israel made an edict that every Hebrew male child two and under had to be killed in and around the area of Bethlehem. In Revelation 12, we see that the dragon or the evil one makes war on the offspring of women. And you see it today in the American abortion industry. This just didn't come about in the 50s and the 60s here. But one of the cool things that you'll always see, just to give you hope, is this is something that God's people have always fought against. Uh, When Pharaoh told the Hebrew midwives, hey, you gotta make sure you kill all the Hebrew babies, they just lied to his face and kept all the babies to themselves and raised them. That's how Moses um, survived. In Peter's day, when the Romans had an unwanted baby, they would not kill them. They thought that was a horrendous idea. So instead they would take the children and expose them. They would put them out in the woods and let fate decide whether or not they lived or they died. And there's all these different historical records of Christians going into the woods at night and rescuing all these babies, just listening for cries. Even if they had barely enough food to feed their family, they were known as those who rescued the babies in the woods and the Romans couldn't stand this. And it's no different today. And can I just add something here? Because I I hear this occasionally, this thought that, you know, Christians are pro-life only until the baby is born. And then after that point, they don't care. I hear that a lot and it just, it never sat well with me. Sadly, I get why a lot of people think that. I mean, Christians are known for uh, picketing and for marching and for boycotting and not exactly for adopting. But there's another side that I've experienced that should give you hope. You know, Jenny and I went through international adoption uh, three times before it failed because of in-country issues. But we've been through foster parent training twice. We've been able to care for three uh, little ones. Uh, um, It's an honor to do that. But one thing I've noticed is that there's a lot of Christians in our foster care class. There's a lot of Christians in the adoption world. And I actually asked my trainer, do you see mainly Christian parents? And at Wake County DSS, they say, absolutely. In fact, they were lacking enough foster parents until they began partnering with faith-based organizations or churches. And then the number of parents actually um, went through the roof. In fact, if you look at the statistics, Christians or Christ followers are more likely to adopt or foster at a measure of two to one, twice as likely. And then you begin looking at the statistics of boys and girls clubs, mentoring programs, food pantries, medical clinics, job skills and training, even visiting the elderly and the sick and the dying in the hospital. And you'll actually find out the opposite true, that Christians lead the cause from cradle to grave in all of life care. So let that be a source of hope for you. But that's what the enemy always does. He always goes after the family. Different time, different culture, same enemy, same tactics, destroy the family. And then a third tactic he always uses is indoctrination. Uh, One of Peter's favorite words in this book is ignorance. And he's bold. He just states it. He calls the accepted wisdom of the day in Rome, the ignorance of foolish people. He tells Christians, hey, don't be conformed or, or forced into this mold of the passions of your former ignorance. He says time and time again, don't be deceived. Don't buy into the lies that your, your enemy is pushing. And he brings this up so often because he knows that our enemy's greatest weapon is lies. I mean, he's called what? The father 
of lies. And one of his main tactics is to get people not just to believe, but to passionately believe and applaud and defend things that just simply aren't true. I mean, that's what he did in the garden. That's the very first thing he did. He went to Eve and said, hey, did God really say? You ever heard that in our culture today? Does the Bible really say that? Does Jesus even talk about it? Did God really say, because the enemy knows if he can get Eve to believe a lie, his work is done. And he's done this all throughout human history. You see kings making these edicts saying, I am God, there is no other. You need to bow down and worship me. Or most recently, like in World War II, it was the Nazi propaganda that there is one race that is superior to all other races, just evil lies that people bought into. Nowadays, it's not so much overt propaganda as it is tweets and hashtags. Short, subtle, memorable statements that just tweak the truth enough that just make the lie believable enough, that, that actually exert moral pressure on people into believing those lies. Because that's what the enemy do, does. He twists truth in order to confuse and to harm. And this has happened throughout all cultures. Gradually, no one really remembers how it happened. The unthinkable becomes tolerable and then acceptable and then legal and then applaudable. And those that aren't applauding are seen as weird and strange and eventually dangerous. And that's us, right? See, separation, attacks on family, indoctrination, different times, different culture, same enemy, same tactics. God's people have been right where we find ourselves hundreds of time in human history facing the same enemy. None of this is new. And a lot of you are like, wow, Thanks for the optimistic message, Chase. <laughs> the enemy's rearing its ugly head. Can't wait for the next few years. Thanks for this, but no, no. See, Peter tells us one more truth that changes our whole outlook. He tells us a more important truth that we, just don't, we don't just have an enemy um, that is good at what he does. Listen, we have a God who is in complete control. None of this surprises God whatsoever. None of this is shocking to him. He didn't wake up in like 62 AD and be like, dang, Nero is more dangerous and powerful than I thought. I hope those Christians figure out a way to survive. No, no, the exact opposite's true. Did you notice that little word in verse one that comes right before exile? You can go ahead and put it up on the side screens. What's that word? It's elect, elect exiles. You know what that word means? It means chosen. It means strategic. It means planned exiles. It means refugees for a reason. It means that God knows exactly what he's doing in allowing all this persecution to roll out. Peter says this in verse two, all of this was according to the foreknowledge of God. See the Christians in Jerusalem, they weren't kicked out because of Nero's persecution. No, they were sent out because of the sovereign will and plan and strategy of God. And it's the same with us. God didn't wake up in the late 90s and be like, dang, we're losing the culture war. Hope they elect some good people, save them from this mess. No, all of this is happening according to God's plan. The growing hostility, the political and legal persecution, the loss of influence and power, that's all according to God's plan. Peter says later in verse four, chapter four, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter says, this is not odd. This is normal. Being comfortable and respected as Christ followers, that's odd. That's strange. 
And if you study human history, uh, church history, you'll realize some of the worst times to be alive during church history are when Christians had political power <laughs> and when they had influence. In fact, some of the best, uh, when God often does his best work from the margins and from the sidelines, the most powerful moments in church history are when Christians are overlooked and persecuted and even martyred for their faith. And that's the attitude that we need to have in this cultural moment that we find ourselves in. In fact, don't put it up on the screens yet, but Peter gives us, I'm gonna ruin the whole series. He gives us a theme verse that just explains almost every sermon. After he talks about, hey, you have a living hope in Jesus, don't give up hope, cling to holiness. He talks about how to suffer well. He talks about submission. He talks about marriage, but he says, if, if, if I wanna just boil it down, if I would put a bow around it, if there's one thought that you need to have it's this, you can put it up on the screens now. This is the theme verse. Maybe you wanna memorize this, it's this. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And that's so powerful, it just cuts through all the confusion and the noise. He says, you wanna know how to respond? You wanna know how to be faithful. You wanna know what your calling is. You wanna know how to make the most out of this unique moment that we find ourselves in. It's simple, you trust and you obey. You trust and you obey. You trust that as confusing as this is, hey, God's got it figured out. And you obey, you just continue to be obedient. You continue to be faithful, even when it offends, which it will. And we'll talk about that. Even when you're mocked, even when you're blind, stay the course and trust God. You know what's interesting? as you look back over the history of God's people, every nation, every evil power that our enemy has used against us has eventually come to an end. There came a day when Egypt was no longer the superpower that it once was. There was a day when Babylon fell. There was a day when Assyria and Persia and even Rome crumbled. And do you know who was standing strong at the funeral of every evil power our enemy has used, the people of God. And it is no different today. Whatever pow power we're battling against now, it's gonna come to an end. In fact, we know the end of the story. Guess what happens to the enemy? He loses. He's already lost. That's why he's freaking out so much. There will come a day when every single knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But until that day comes, listen, now is not a time to sit on the sidelines or to freak out or to become despondent or to get angry. No, God does his best work when we're pushed to the margins in cultural moments like these. We talked a lot about our enemy today, but from this point forward, he's in the rear view mirror. We got more important things to talk about. This is a time to step up and to live up to our calling. This is such an important series. Maybe you're not a Christ follower yet. And maybe you're here and you're like, you're right, Christians are weirdos. Well, guess what? We're gonna talk about what makes us weirdos in this series. If you are a Christ follower and you have been feeling confused, you don't know how to respond, we're gonna talk about that. We're gonna talk about how this is not a season of hopelessness, how the living hope that we have in Jesus is more real and more precious and more important now than it ever has been. We're gonna be talking about the pressure that we feel to give up on our holiness, to, to bend and to budge on certain truths from our culture. But that's the last thing that we should do. In fact, there's this attractiveness to real holiness that God can use to bring others into his kingdom. We're gonna talk about how to endure all types of suffering in a way that points people to Jesus. We're gonna talk about how we should submit to 
and how we can submit to and honor the authorities in our lives, political and otherwise, even when they persecute us. And we're going to be talking about where submission to men stops and submission to God begins. And we're going to be talking about love how to love, how to love deeply and broadly, how to leave a legacy of love so that when the people that hate us try to come up with a reason why, they can't. So whether you're not yet a Christ follower, you've been kind of feeling the cultural tension of trying to understand why, or if you are a Christ follower and you don't just want to sit back and watch, you don't just want to endure, but you want to thrive and you want to make a difference, the next few weeks are for you. So I'm so excited about this series. Are you guys... Yes. All right. Well, let me pray and we'll dismiss you. Father, thank you for your words. Thank you that it's given in love and that it's true. Thank you that it is not an old book, but that it's a timeless book. Thank you that it doesn't tell us what happened, but it tells us what always happens. So Father, I pray in the next few weeks, you will just raise up a church of people that love our culture, that don't point fingers at people as our enemies, but that battle against our real, true, and spiritual enemy with things like holiness and hope and suffering and love and submission. And I pray that you would make a change in our lives and really make a huge change in the city that we find ourselves in. And we pray all of this for the glory and fame of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Hope Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this message and encourage you to share it with your friends and family. If you live in the greater Raleigh-Durham area in North Carolina, we'd love to meet you at one of our weekend gatherings. For campus locations, service times, and information on our children and student environments, check out gethope.net. To make sure you don't miss our next message, please take a moment to hit the subscribe button. We would like to invite you to support what we are doing by visiting gethope.net slash give. Through generosity of people like you, Hope can run programs like our food pantry, homework club, project classroom, and many more.